Okay, superhero stage in the background. A uh, couple notes before we get started. Uh, depending upon where you're seating and how observant you are, uh, are, are uh, you'll either not notice or be incredibly bothered or wondering. Um, there, there's actually like a white bar going across my forehead. I don't know if you can see it in the back, but um, I, I, I got to go fishing again, praise God. Um, and uh, I, I had my, my hair wrapped up with a little band thing, so this is where the band rested. Uh, and so there's just like a white bar going across, across my forehead. Um, I should have just, when people ask, like, oh, did, did you get sunburned? No, no, this is like what, this is in style now. It's like it's, it's white strips on top of your forehead. So um, what was also fun, too, is worse yesterday, and I film uh, sometimes for our Hollister 8.30 in the morning service because we can't be there because the services take place simultaneous. So sometimes like Sam or Kevin will preach there, but uh, a lot of the times I, I film a video too. So the video, of course, is up close um, and it's just boom, right, right, right there. And my skin was red or my eyes are all red. And I actually spent some time on a boat too. So um, every time I close my eyes to pray, you know when you're, you're in a boat or hang out at the ocean all day in the waves? It was kind of like this. So people thought I was probably just like extra, extra spiritual that day. Just. Or if you were new to the church, you go, okay, this dude has dreadlocks. His eyes are completely red. He can't be still. It's California. It's the Bay Area. We're not coming back here. We're going to visit an, a, another church. Okay. I don't want to talk too much on other stuff because I'm going to attempt to get through the sermon in like 25 minutes. And what I'd like to do, we just, I just told Drew this a uh, few minutes before service started. What I want to do is open it up for about 15 minutes at the end for any of you to share about um, either things you've learned or th- things God has Im- have impressed upon your heart in our time in 1 John. Because today's our last week in the book of 1 John. We're actually just going through the kind of John's conclusion to, to his letter. So I want to get through the text quickly and then open it up as a church family to say, we've, we've spent now over 10 weeks going through the book of 1 John verse by verse. Is there anything that, that you feel God is convicting you about, impressed upon your heart? Are you encouraged about? Or maybe some themes that stuck out or maybe just some things that you learned that you, that you hadn't heard before and you just want to share and have that discussion. We, we like to do that um, it's one of the benefits of, of, of a very small church. If, you, if you're in a church of less than 50 people, it has this kind of communal sharing dynamic that's awesome and amazing, and we just want to preserve the strength of that as much as possible. Mostly we do that through small groups, but we want it to be a part of our, our main service as well. So if you're just joining us, we are in the last week of this, this series. Oh, there is a cool thing, though. Um, it's technically the last week of this series, but next week we're going to do sort of a, a, a sequel um, just for one week, and we're going to go to the book of the Revelation because the book of the Revelation has some interesting things going on that have direct relationship with the churches that John is writing to in this context. And, and I'll just give you a hint. It doesn't end good. It, 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 it doesn't work out, and so there's a massive lesson for us to learn. So that'll be next week. Conclusion two, First John, chapter five. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, 
I love the context that, that John provides in 1 John because sometimes in the Bible, there'll be kind of summarized statements that can lead people down the wrong path and certainly give uh, a foundation for false teachers to take advantage of. The context I'm talking about here is that John says, whatever you ask in prayer, you're, God hears you and you're going to get it. But he gives the extra context of you pray in accordance with his will. And, and this is simple, but it, but it is massive. Verse 14, this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Christian prayer is prayer seeking to pray in accordance and in, align, in alignment, in harmony with the will of God. Many times... And people, you can be incredibly burned by this. If you think the Bible tells you that whatever you ask in prayer, no matter what, you're going to get. If you, if you believe that, you're going to be incredibly disappointed. Incredibly disappointed. I mean, there's just tons of things that take place. I mean, who hasn't had a loved one that they've prayed for and it doesn't work out? I mean, that's part of the human experience. But what happens is, People take advantage of verses that, that don't give the context here that First John gives this in accordance with his will. So um, there's two versions of this. I'll call the, the one version the strong version and the other version the weak version. The strong version of misinterpreting verses like this manifests itself in something called the prosperity gospel. Uh, and I like to talk about the prosperity gospel about every six months because it's something that's massive, it's huge, it's big. Millions and millions of people are buying into it, and it's lies straight from the pit of hell. I could just speak very clearly on that. It is just evil. What I mean by the prosperity gospel is the teaching that says, if you have faith, whatever you ask of God, you will get. But the prosperity gospel also has an extra emphasis on this life and material blessing now. So the prosperity gospel teachers will say, you, you, you need more money? Just have the faith and send us 10 bucks and God will multiply that by 10 and give you 100. And it, it sounds like I'm just making that up, but if you've seen the, the kind of the, them on TV, no, it's that, it's that like on the table. There's just no hiding. It's like, Oh, if you're struggling with, with, with cancer, if you're struggling with a job opportunity, if you're struggling with not having enough money, what you need to do is sow a seed of faith. And if, and if you call this number right now and donate $100, you're going to get my book, some anointing oil, and God's going to multiply your blessing by sevenfold if you're willing to entrust us with that seed of faith. You guys know what I'm talking about? You all see this stuff on TV here or there? Or it's, or, uh, the, the unfortunate thing is the people who, who do that most often are the most desperate, the people who are in a situation where they're willing to try anything. And so it's the poorest of the poor, it's the single mother, it's the person who is sick, who is overwhelmed with hospital bills, and they just c come in and, and send money. And essentially what this does is it makes God not the sovereign God where he determines his will, but it creates a God who is dependent upon you, and you get a genie in the bottle God. So that's, that's the strong version. That's the one that's easy to identify. But there is a weaker version of this that isn't by the guy in the suit with the 1-800 number telling you to send in your money. The weaker version appears all over the place. And, and all that weaker version says is that God, he loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. He wants to bless you now. He just wants to make you happy. Do you know how hard you work? 
You deserve more. You deserve to be, to be treated better. Serve yourself. Don't look out for the needs of others. Get as comfortable in this life as possible because that's what God wants for you. There's a version that sneaks into American Christianity that says God wants you to be comfortable and safe and just trust him with what you have and everything will be comfortable and safe. And, and the scary thing is, here's the scary part of that, is every last one of us wants that to be true. Every single person in this room wants that to be true. And the gospel of Jesus Christ does not promise you that in this life. It doesn't. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, you want to follow me? You want to follow Jesus? You want to be a Christian? Take up your cross and learn to die. You want to find your life? Lose it. Learn to be a living, walking, breathing sacrifice daily. Do it again and again and again. Jesus tells his disciples, I send you out among wolves. Jesus tells his disciples, you will be taken into their courts and flogged for my name's sake. And so the strong version of God gives you whatever you want manifest in the prosperity gospel, the weak version of it manifests everywhere. And we all sort of want it to be true that God wants us to ultimately have a safe and comfortable life. And here's the mystery and the paradox of Christianity. If you want to find your life, You've got to lose it. You die to yourself and you find life. And in this tension, God actually does give joy and, and happiness and purpose and meaning. But it is not in seeking it for yourself. It's in learning to lay down your life for your king and for people. And somehow in that mysterious paradox, you find what the Bible would call living waters, and they flow out of you. So, John gives us some needed context to prayer. You pray in accordance with his will for the advancement of his kingdom. You seek first his kingdom and all will be added unto you. All right, next verse. I'm going to try to do this super quick because I actually don't know the right answer, but I want to give everyone the, the major interpretations. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. This, this is weird. This is very weird. And I, I got two words underlined here, and depending upon how you understand these two words, it will lead you down a path of interpretation. Each one of those paths breaks off into like two other branches. So here's what's going on. John is saying there are two types of sin, sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death. And then he says, if someone is caught in a sin leading to death, I'm not telling you not to pray for them. And then he leaves it at that. It's kind of weird. It's, he doesn't say, you're not supposed to, don't pray for these people. He just says, I'm not going to tell you that you should. It's like the only time in the Bible anyone ever does that. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that, that does not lead to death. So you have to decide. You have to make two decisions. And I've underlined the two words. You have to decide what the word brother means and what the word death means. Some people would say that the word brother is referring to Christians, uh, a man or a woman who is a Christian. 
Some people would say that brother does not refer to a Christian. The second option is with death, you have to decide which death are you talking about. Are you talking about the first physical death, or you are talking about the second death, separation from God? And depending upon which combination you choose, there's actually several different routes to take. So let me, let me, let me walk you through them, and you can decide what you think John is trying to get at, because this is in, it is in the Bible. God put it in His Word for a reason, and it is important. But we don't want to arrogantly assume that figuring out the Bible always is is super easy because sometimes it's difficult. If you think the word brother is referring to a Christian, you can say there is a man or a woman who is a Christian and a part of these churches who is committing some type of sin that will ultimately lead them to death. But then you have to decide, is it death as in they're going to physically die, like God is going to take them out? or that this is talking about the second death. If you take that route, you are ultimately saying there are types of sins that Christians can commit that would make them lose their salvation and send them to a life of eternity apart from God. So that's one interpretation. You see the logic of that? There's someone who is a Christian who is doing a sin leading to death, second death, and they're going to be separated from God. Some people would say, no, 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 brother here isn't referring to Christian. We have to remember the context. There are churches that John is writing to, and they're all claiming to be Christians. They're all a part of the Christian community, but there's false teachers in that mix. So some people would say, there are people who you think are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are part of your church community, but they are participating in some type of sin that is ultimately going to lead them to be separated from God for eternity go to hell. And so um, that one, if if John was here today, he would look out in the audience and say, there's some of you here today that you're a part of the Christian community, you're brothers and sisters in in this community, but make no mistake about it, you're not a Christian. You haven't experienced new life. And some of you in that category are committing sins that ultimately lead you down a path of destruction. So that's, that's another interpretation. But then you can say, what if death is not referring to second death? It's, it's the first death. You would say that John is trying to communicate this idea that there's Christians, brothers, they're Christians, who are doing something so evil, so wrong, that God is actually going to kill them physically. You may say, that, that sounds like a radical interpretation. Um, is there anywhere else in the New Testament where we see God uh, taking out Christians <laughs> because of sin? And the answer, the answer is, yeah. There, there's there's a, a passage where Paul is talking about people taking communion inappropriately and then falling asleep. And it's an it's a idiomatic phrase. It means they're, they, they're dead. What about the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They lie about their giving to the Lord, and then they get, they get taken out. So some people would say, uh, theologian uh, uh, by the name of Benjamin Warfield thought this. He said, there are some things that Christians, genuine Christians get caught up in that God in his mercy takes them out before they can go down that path to its ultimate end. So that's that's a possibility. And then the kind of last possibility is that we're talking about um, false teachers who are in the community that are doing such evil things that God's judgment is just going to come take them out. So, 
it's one of those passages in the... I always want to be honest with, with the Bible as the best of our ability. I always, I'm always bothered when we mean well as Christians and we say, start reading your Bible. It's, it's so easy and uh, it'll just fill you and change your life. And there's a part of that that's true, but there's a whole lot of the places in the Bible that are like this. And you're like, I have no idea what's going on here. And depending upon who's talking, you could convince me on any of those interpretations. And so we just need to be honest with the text when that happens. What I think is occurring is that there are false teachers who are part of the Christian community. They are brothers and sisters in church, but before God, they are actually not born-again Christians. They haven't experienced the new life. John talks about people who are confessing Christ, but they're not confessing that Christ has come in the flesh. They have the spirit of the Antichrist. And because of that, I think these people are in the community, and John is warning them that if you continue on in this, God's going to take you out, either in this life or the next. I think something like that's going on. Um, But there's another important thing that comes out of this. This is a little bit more controversial. Um, And feel free to disagree with me. Always know that just because someone on a Sunday says something from the stage or has a pulpit or has a Bible verse behind them, it doesn't mean they're right. And so every pastor is wrong probably like 10% of the time. That's still an A, 90%. It's pretty good. Um, so if, if, you know, I don't shoot for excellence. If I get a C plus, man, if I pass, God says, man, you got a C plus. Come home, son, when it's all said and done. That'll work. Um, but for some of you, you're, you've been ingrained because I'm going to challenge something that like tons of Christians say. I'm going to challenge it. I'm going to give you some biblical reasons and then let you figure out and you can judge for yourself. But I think, I think the phrase and the slogans that we make often hurt us. So there is this idea in kind of modern Christianity in our, in our kind of cultural context um, that says all sin is sin or all sin is equal before God. Raise your hand if you've heard that or seen, seen something like that. Okay, so like 90%, even non-Christians, and this is the reason why it's important to me, even non-Christians have heard Christians say, all sin is sin, all sins are equal before God. And the reason why I know this is gonna be controversial is because I know probably more than half of you have told someone this, and no one likes to be told that what they've told other people is wrong. But just, just hear me out and be gracious with me. Um, here's my concern. The Bible talks a lot about different sins having different weight. They, uh, there are seven deadly sins. In 1 John, there are sins that lead to death and sins that do not lead to death. There are sins that God hates. There are weightier matters of the law, according to Jesus. Sexual immorality is a greater sin and more harmful sin because it takes a Christian whose body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and unites it in some sinful act. It's a weightier, heavier sin. When people say all sin is sin and sin is all equal before God, what they mean is true, but it's communicating too much. When people say that, they are trying to say that all sin, a small sin or a big sin, separates us from God. And that's absolutely true. So stealing cookies from the cookie jar is a grave sin before God. I mean, it just is. And so is murder. Both of those things are sin. They are breaking God's law, and they separate you from God, and they put you in the position where you need a Savior and His forgiveness. Whether you stole a cookie or you stole a car, whether you spit on someone's face or you kill them, all of those things 
separates you from God and puts you in the place of needing a Savior and forgiveness. However, that does not mean morally or ethically speaking that they hold the same weight. Sins can be more heinous or offensive to God. Stealing cookies from a cookie jar is not as wrong or bad or morally evil as killing somebody. It just isn't. And the Bible says this over and over and over and over again, but sometimes our Christian slogans determine our theology rather than letting good theology determine our Christian slogans. So let me just give you some some biblical um, verses that illustrate this concept. Jesus, in speaking to people in a community called Capernaum, uh, is basically, he's pronouncing judgment over them because he's done all these teaching and all these miracles and no one is believing. And this is what Jesus says. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. See Jesus' point? He's saying more revelation, more teaching, more miracles have been done in Capernaum and they're still unbelieving. And Jesus is saying, if I had done the same thing in Sodom, which if you're familiar with the Old Testament is like one of the worst cities in the Old Testament, if I had done these things to the people of Sodom, they would have repented. But you are so wicked and so corrupt, even though you've seen all this, you still refuse to repent. So your judgment will be greater than the people of Sodom on that day. In other words, where much is given, much will be required. You've been given a lot in life. You've you've had it easy, and you do very little for the kingdom of God. God holds you more accountable than the person who had less revelation, less mercy in life. When it's funny, two different theologians uh, and pastors, Billy Graham and John Piper, quote the same Bible verse. They've both been asked, "Are all sins is all sin equal before God?" And both of them, their answer is, "No, of course not." Um, and they both use the same Bible verse in their, their defense. And it's just funny because it's, it's, such, it's, a harsh, it's a harsh verse. It's a parable that Jesus gives about people serving the master. And, and this is how the parable ends. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. This is the loving teachings of Jesus. Verse 48. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And again, this is a parable. Jesus isn't talking about a literal physical beating. And then here's this other guy who gets a light beating. But the point is clear. You get more in life. You have more revelation, more of the gospel. You have a better situation, circumstance. You got dealt a good hand. There's greater responsibility upon you more will be required, and judgment is directly bound up with all that. The Westminster Catechism kind of nails this down succinctly and perfectly. Um, There's a question that says, what, this is old school, by the way. This is like King James 1611 English old school. What doth every sin deserve at the hands of God? Every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God and against his righteous law, deserveth his wrath and curse, both in this life and which is to come. In other words, that's what that 
all sin is sin is trying to communicate. All sin separates you from God. All sin puts you under his judgment and in place of needing a savior, whether it's tiny or large. Same ultimate separation from God. But there needs to be clarification. It goes on. Are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? All transgressions of the law are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. So there, there's, there's more an offense to God over murdering someone versus doing what many of you have done at the grocery store. You illegally sample two or three grapes without asking the, the people if that's okay. You know when church people laugh, it's because there's just, it's either you let the guilt sink in or you diffuse it with your defense mechanism of laughter. You're all thieves, grape stealers, little $5.99 a pound. You don't want to buy, you know, Bing cherries, $5.99 a pound if you don't know they're fresh. God take, oh, that's not bad. God take, well, maybe I got a couple good ones, maybe some bad ones in this lot. Got to try a couple more. Some of you go to Costco, you know, samples are meant to sample not circle back three or four times and get dinner. You've got seven or eight kids, and you just, hey, go, go have fun, kids. Dad will come back in an hour. Here's, here's my concern with all of this. We, we have to watch what we're articulating to an unbelieving world. Christians mean the right thing when they say all sin is sin, all sin is equal before God. They're trying to say that everyone needs a savior, and that's true. But what many people hear is that Christians believe all sin is equal in weight. And I can tell you that because tons of non-Christians have said that to me. They've said things like, yeah, I can never understand my mom. She, she thinks it's just as wrong for me to be living with my girlfriend as what Hitler did in, in the World War II era. She goes, all sin is sin, and sleeping with my girlfriend is just as bad as what Hitler did. In one sense, yes, all sin separates you from God. In another sense, killing millions of people, torturing and experimenting them is more morally offensive to God than someone sleeping with their girlfriend. And the Bible's crystal clear in all that, so our slogans betray us here. Now, it's not to say that you shouldn't take sleeping with your, with your girlfriend lightly, all I'm saying is that it's not as bad as torturing millions of people. And again, I'll come, come back to this. This is important. Sexual sin is marked out in the Bible. It's in a category different because it's taking place. You are taking your body, especially if you're a Christian, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and uniting it in some, some sinful act. Paul makes that crystal clear. Because one of the other things that our slogans has done to us um, is especially young people, especially young people who have grown up in the church, the second an adult or their parent makes a judgment call about some other immoral act, like, like let's say you're saying, I can't believe such and such, they're doing X, Y, Z. And it's, it's some moral evil, it's some moral wrong. The young person who sort of grew up in the church but their parents didn't articulate theology to them, they just gave them slogans, they'll say, well, who are you to judge? All sin is sin. Why don't you remove the speck from, from your eye first before you go say that's wrong? As if to say, I can't say killing people through genocidal means is wrong because I stole grapes from Safeway. 
you can still make that moral claim. Things are weightier. There are weightier matters of the law. So I'm going to leave that at that, and you wrestle through it theologically, but the main point of doing this exercise is to say, not just with this little slogan, but with all of our Christian slogans, the unbelieving word is hearing them, and what you mean is probably true, and inside your Christian bubble, everyone knows what you mean, but when you say them out loud to an unbelieving word, they may work out the implications of that and come to different conclusions than what you mean. And this is one example where I'm positive this is taking place because I hear it come up again and again and again. Let's wrap up, and then we're going to... We're, just, we're not even going to share about what we learned. We're just going to open up to confession time. A lot, of, a lot of guilty conscience up in here. Someone's already writing a check to Costco. I'm so sorry. Me and my family of eight have been eating those egg rolls that you cut out into little quarters for five years. You owe them a couple hundred bucks. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We've talked a lot about verse 18. John isn't meaning that if you sin, you're not of God. He's saying if you continue on in habitual, intentional sin against God and you don't care, you never get convicted, you might not be a Christian. And the reason for that in John's mind is that a Christian has the spirit inside of them. And God himself, through his spirit, is going to convict you of sin eventually. You can't just keep on willfully sinning and not care. A Christian is going to feel the conviction. Can't do it forever. And I'm not saying it means that you, you magically fix it and it gets better. You, you're able to triumph over all your sins. No, no, I'm just saying that you're going to have conviction and you're going to try to see things through the lens of, of the Spirit. Whoever, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him. It's a beautiful verse. It's, it's like God is saying, if you are a Christian and you're in my hand, you're not going to keep on sinning. And it's not because you're so morally upright. It's because I'll protect you even from yourself. You, you, you have God himself giving you strength to conquer the things that he's put in front of you. In, uh, for, in the Gospel of John... Jesus says the same thing, but in a more poetic fashion. It's, it's beautiful. Many people's favorite Bible verse. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In other words, you won't keep on sinning because God protects you, and His Spirit will convict you, and He'll give you strength day by day by day for the rest of your life. And then verse 18 continues, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. A beautiful image. The whole world is in the grips of the evil one, but if you are a Christian, you rest in the hand of God and evil cannot touch you because even if evil does its worth worse and kills you, the Christian says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Last verse. 
And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. It ends with this kind of parental tone. Little children, keep yourself from idols. It's this image of family. And that's partially why I asked Drew this morning if we could spend some time just sharing, just 10 minutes. Um, As we end the book of 1 John, let's kind of have like a family dinner, if you will. And you're all around the table, and you say, how was your day? What's, What's going on? And you know, by the way, uh, I say this often, but it's a good reminder. Um, if, if you still have young kids in your, in your family and you're not coming together to, to eat dinner, try, try to make that habit happen. Try, try to get in the habit of doing that. It matters. It means something. Family is being around a table eating. It, it's a spiritual, sacred act. Get in the practice of it. Um, everything in our culture wants to, to take us away from that, from electronic devices to schedules to busyness to sport. Do that to the best of your ability. And what, and let's just do that right now. Um, for the application of this sermon series, all I was going to say was, I don't want to give you any specific points. I just want to say, as we've been here for more than 10 weeks, what are the things that have stuck out to you in First John? What are they? Ask God to help you in those, to, to impress upon your heart what he wants you to do. But maybe some of you already know that. You already know exactly what God was doing in your life through the book of 1 John. And so, just briefly, we got like 10 minutes. The first person always raises their hand and has to share. It's always awkward. I know that. Um, but share and try not to take more than two minutes so we can get four or five people sharing. Because also, there's also that person who takes 10 minutes to share one minute worth of information. Um, and usually they're employed as pastors that you have to listen to every Sunday. <laughs> so, yeah, anything that you feel God has been doing in your life through the book of First John conviction, maybe something you've learned, maybe a new perspective you had. And if there's nothing, that's okay, because sometimes family dinner, no one wants to talk anyway. But that, that's okay. So I'm going to let there be awkward silence. If anyone wants to, wants to share, Awesome. Are you getting up, Lisa, to find the microphone, or you're going to the bathroom? You're like, I don't want to hear any of this. It's like I'm over this. Yeah, we got we got uh, Drew coming for them with the microphone. Yeah, you got a question. This is a good question. Go no, go ahead, and say it so everyone can hear it. Yeah. And, and could you go over that again in the spelling? Yeah, so pistis is the noun faith. Pistuo is the, is the verb of pistis faith. But in English, if you weren't here last week, we don't have a verb form that functions uh, for the noun faith like Greek. So, we, so Bible translations won't put faithine in the verb sense. They'll put the word believing or believe. Um, pistis is P-I-S-T-I-S. And the verb form of that, pistuo, is P-I-S-T-E-O-E-U-O. Sorry. Anything else? Feel free to share. I have a plan B anyway. Yeah, right here. beginning of the year said that the Lord spoke to her from the uh, fruit of the spirit 
and the fruit that she needed in her life was peace. And I asked the Lord, and he said the one that I need in my life is love. And this, it, God has spoken to me about love so many times this year, and especially through this series. His love for me and the love that I need to have for others. Mm. And that's the goal of my life, is to live a life of love. And I've seen that over and over in this series. Thank you. Awesome. Good word. That's, that's John uses the word love more in his gospel and in this epistle than all other occurrences combined in the New Testament. It is the, the thing. God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, therefore love others. God loves you, therefore love others, over and over and over again. Yeah, anything else? What else? My wife's got a smile on her face, like, she, like it's awkward, I don't or. Okay, cool. Last call. Okay, good. I, I, I want to close with a video um, that I think gets to the heart of, of all of this. John has been saying again and again and again that your heavenly Father loves you and that although the world is evil, he loves you and he has adopted you into his family. That's what being in Christ means. We talked about that last week. You don't just get God. You become a part of the family of God and you get the people. Uh, so many, again, it sounds like I'm ripping on young people today, but they deserve it. Um, <laughs> old people deserve it too, but that's a different, that's a different, that sermon was like four weeks ago. Um, one of our other catchphrases is, all you need is a personal relationship with Jesus, another slogan. The, the, the Bible doesn't think in those categories because the Bible says you don't just get God personally, it's just you and him. You get placed in the family of God, you're adopted into the family, and you get the church, his bride as well. So it's, it's, it's the community of the people of God. And in that, you get not perfection, but you get like any other family. There's some of us who are a little bit more adjusted than others, I was a little bit more crazy than others. All families are broken. There, there's issues. There's people dynamics. But at the end of the day, it's still your family. And so I have this clip that I just want to show, and then we're going to transition back into worship. And what this clip does is it uh, depicts, it's from a TV show. I don't even know what the TV show is called, but it's going to show an adoption kind of taking place. And I want you to listen to everything everyone is saying because there's so many parallels with it that work with our adoption into the family of God. Oh, where'd it go? There you go. Yes, yes, come on in. Braverman. Great. All right, yes, I can. This is Salsa. He's a lizard. This will take a while. That's a good idea. Just Okay, all right. Come on in. Come in, please. Come in. Okay. Close the door. Okay, everyone, please. Hello, everyone, please. All right, welcome. Thank you. All right, uh, so Joel and Julia Graham. Yes. Yeah, hi. So now you understand that by signing this adoption agreement form, you agree to uh, take care of Victor as your own legal child, right, to provide for his health, his welfare, his educational needs? We do. Yes, Your Honor. Victor, do you understand? Do you agree to this adoption? Yeah. 
Okay, then. <laughs> All right, well, then, unless anyone has anything to add, I'm ready to make it official. <clears throat> Your Honor, yes, if sir. I may. Mm-hmm. As grandparents, my wife, Camille, and myself will do the best we can to, uh, to give Victor what we've given our own children, which is our undying love and support. And also, being a baseball aficionado, uh, I would like to teach him the art of fielding the hot grounder. <laughs> okay. But hey, that can wait till later. And, uh, Your Honor, I'm sorry, if, if I may, I'm Adam Braverman. I'm Deacon Camille's oldest son, and I promise to be your uncle. Listen, your, your Aunt Christine and I are no substitute for your stellar parents, but we promise to be there for you no matter what. You can always come to me, Victor, if you need help, and I promise I won't rat you out to your mom. I can give you dating advice. Oh, and then I can help repair the terrible damage that her what dating is this? advice what? does. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to teach you how to ride a motorcycle and play an instrument. Oh, your girl troubles will vanish immediately <laughs> once you know those two things. Yeah. And you can come to my house anytime. We can play Xbox, and you can sleep over into us. Now that you're adopted, you can officially hold my lizards. Okay. <laughs> I promise to love you, buddy. Yeah. No matter what. Me too. Okay. Okay. It's quite a family you're coming into. All right, on this date, January 24, 2013, Joel and Julia Graham have officially adopted Victor Graham. You're now legally their child. You have all the rights of any natural child. Okay. I will hereby sign this order confirming the adoption. All right. So clearly you see that like the adoption takes place, but the family isn't like the bratty kids already got the gavel and making noise. Like it's because people are always like, you know, I just, I just want to have a personal relationship with God. The, the church is filled with, there, there's so many evil people in the church. They're so broke. Yes, of course they're broken and they're evil. They're just like you. We're all fallen and messed up and in need of a savior. And you get God and you get the people of God. The part that touches me the most and it, they, they do a good job on it is the dad gets teary-eyed when uh, the, the, the judge says, um, you now have all the rights and legal benefits of a natural child. That's what in Christ means. You were an orphan abandoned. And what was worse is you were an orphan that didn't want to be adopted. But God on his grace and his mercy changed your heart, and he drew you unto himself. And when he puts you in Christ, you have all the rights of the son. His victory is your victory. His family is your family. And and you're brought into the wonder, I mean, I I love church. Uh, and it's not just because I, I'm a pastor, but if, if you see that it, it's a place where just people messed up and broken and fallen as we are, are all striving to be more like Christ, 
because he has shown us grace and mercy. It's, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And I believe the church, with all of its bad press, is the, the, the greatest hope for the world, just broken people wanting to display the love of the Father in word and in action. And that's what the church is called to be, the family of God who takes the love of the Father that has been poured into them and pours it out into a world that's in desperate need of a Savior. And if we could summarize 1 John, that's it. It's taking the love of the Father, letting it change you, and pour out into a broken world that's in the hands of the evil one. So I'm going to pray, and we'll reflect on these truths, and we'll transition into worship. God, I thank you for this uh, church family. Thank you that you've shown us all mercy and, and drawn us unto yourself, Lord. Forgive us when we stumble and fall. Pick us up. We know that you keep us in your hands, and we're safe and secure. Evil does not touch us. The worst thing evil does to a Christian is gain. And we love you, Lord, and may we worship your son Jesus today as the people of God, and may we do it in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.